So if you can, turn with me to the end of, of Luke. We're going to jump in there in a second. But I want to begin uh, by reading for you something that Pascal wrote. Pascal, uh, many years ago, the Christian writer Blaise Pascal uh, was the founder of probability theory and wrote a bunch of thoughts down um, in French pensées and died at a young age and they, they kind of gathered up his notes, his thoughts that he was putting together for a book and published it and it's been one of kind of the classics of Western literature ever since. And Pascal says this, he says, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. They will never take the least step but to this object of finding happiness. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Um, Augustine, St. Augustine, writing in uh, the late 300s, early 400s, uh, his kind of massive work called The City of God was really a defense against people that were blaming the downfall of the Roman Empire on Christianity. There was a saying going around that drought and Christianity go hand in hand. Basically, that the slow uh, kind of shrinking of the, of the Roman Empire, the barbarians coming in, that all of this, the sacking of Rome, which had never happened, that all of this was a part of the Roman Empire becoming Christian. And that's really what motivated Augustine to write this whole work uh, in defense of the Christian faith. Um, and he says this in the 10th book of the City of God. He says this, It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. It is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy. But who are happy or how they become so, these are questions about which the weakness of human understanding stirs endless and angry controversies and in which philosophers have wasted their strength and expended their leisure. Uh, and he goes on and comes back to the idea that regarding the future life of happiness, that this is found only and can only be found in God. When I became a Christian, it was an interesting thing. I got scolded many times for talking about happiness. Uh, I, I was just doing it naturally. We talk about happiness kind of conversationally, don't we? And I, I started hanging around Christian groups, and whenever I would talk about happiness, I would either get looks or people would kind of talk to me. They, they knew I was kind of the guy that didn't get it, so I got pulled aside a lot. Um, back in those days, and scolded, and I got scolded for talking about happiness, and it was like, that's not what life is about, and, and I remember thinking, okay, um, the right answer is, we're not supposed to be happy, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, um, don't say the wrong answer again, Ken, you're going to embarrass yourself, these Christians are no joke, they, they walk around with scowls on, and they tell you whenever you get anything wrong, they're very unforgiving people, these Christians, right? So I programmed myself not to talk about happiness. And um, I kind of got cured of that by reading C.S. Lewis and then also uh, looking in Scripture and, and coming across passages in Hebrews where Jesus, we're told, went to the cross, what was motivated to go to the cross for the joy set before him. In other words, the goodness, the happiness to come was sufficient enough motive um, to, to go through the valley, to go through this, this painful death um, because he had his eyes set on something ahead. We all know that, right? That short-term fixes, what we call pleasure, um, don't really work because it, uh, it doesn't take cause effect into account. And, and you can find pleasure in a lot of things that immediately you're gonna find um, don't lead to happiness. Or you can choose delay of gratification or even to suffer for a little while for a greater good. We all kind of understand that as we grow up. Um, and so I began to kind of realize, no, happiness has a rich tradition. And I, I ended up writing a, an 80-page independent study paper on happiness in grad school. And, um, and was able to get into Augustine and Pascal and all of these great thinkers that, that unanimously, Aquinas, 
Uh, Aquinas says that God alone constitutes man's happiness. He has no negative words to say about happiness. He has only positive words to say about it, but like a good teacher or pastor or, or whatever, wants to connect that with where it's going to truly be found. And so he does that. But we all seek happiness. I want to say that unabashedly. We all seek happiness. The problem is, um, is that we don't all find it. We don't all find it. And we struggle with trying to resolve the tension that comes from uh, a desire to have things as they ought to be, to have things flourishing and be good. We're made in God's image. And if we, if we learn anything from Scripture, it's that God is a relational God. God is an equitable and just God. And God sincerely desires and is committed to things being reconciled and as they ought to be so that it will please him. And that even when we come into alignment with that and work along those same ends, that we please him. And so that his pleasure is when all these things come into harmony. We're made in God's image. We have a deep-seated desire for happiness that is born out of a relationality and everything being the way it ought to be and flourishing. And so we go hunting for that. We go looking for happiness. And if we get into a, a section of religion that's a little bit too religious and there's a little bit too much guilt... And, and not enough happiness, we sublimate to self-righteousness and, and the better than you kind of feeds us a little bit. So we do that to find happiness. Or if there's too much guilt in Christianity or in religion, we, we become progressive Christians so that we can kind of rewrite the rules uh, of what Christianity believes, thinks, or how Christians should act and sometimes that's good because it can reform things to where it ought to be. Sometimes it's just license uh, or a way to kind of baptize being able to move forward without any guilt um, because you've kind of redrawn the boundaries. Or speaking of guilt, oftentimes what we do if we have too much guilt, if we're trying to follow religion and it's not producing this thing that we know we're hungry for, we'll find a new group of friends. A new group of friends. Because nothing can give us permission quicker to feel good about what, uh, doing what we want to do or continuing on in the path that we want to continue on than a group of friends that is saying it's okay. I mean, there's no quicker way to gain permission than a, than a group of friends. So sometimes we'll redo our group of friends. Sometimes, even though we're adults and we understand delay of gratification, we find that we're not happy, and so you end up with interesting things like affairs. Because we go back to buying into the, the, the same juvenile thought that somehow pleasure, if I just turn a blind eye to cause effect or any of the other uh, things that are going to happen here, that this thing somehow will make me happy, and it's, it's a complete illusion. This one thing, when, when entered into, destroys everything else. And it doesn't make you happy. But sometimes we find that we, we desire happiness so much that we find that we don't have it so much that we'll forget what we've learned in life um, and we'll resort to being juvenile again. But there's all sorts of ways that in society we try to find um, a way or, or options or things to ultimately fill this need that we have, to scratch this itch. And I think one of the biggest things is we have a lot of people who don't find it and the tricks aren't working and so ultimately end up just in front of the TV or in front of a bottle and we're going to entertain ourselves to death or we're going to numb ourselves so that we don't feel any pain anymore. But happiness is this thing deep inside of us, this desire for happiness. It's this deep, real need in us that God created in us that would only be filled in our relationship through him and, and as the fruit of the Spirit is born out in our life and we come to be more loving, to have more joy, peace, patience, and all the other virtues that allow us to feel good about ourselves. Um, but we find it in different ways. We look for it in different ways. And the interesting thing about this today for me is that we ultimately come to this passage in Luke 
where Jesus is now risen from the dead. And so in chapter 24, in verse 13, we see Jesus show up on the road to Emmaus. It's another meal. We could have stretched the series out and talked about this one a little more at length. Pete mentioned it kind of in the opening sermon uh, of this series. But Jesus shows up with these guys, and they're, they're discussing the events of the day. And then Jesus kind of shows them from Scripture that the events of the day are actually the fulfillment of prophecy. And all of a sudden, their eyes are open to what um, was foretold and what did happen. Uh, and then Jesus moves on. And then we get to Jesus in verse 36, and he's going to appear to the rest of the disciples. And so verses 36 and following, it says this. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom. And they were startled and frightened and thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written uh, that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opens their minds and he shows them what was written. And he tells them, this is what was written, that the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these great things. And I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Um, fascinating passage. So what is Jesus doing as he shows up? So, I mean, picture the scene. You're, you're there. You're worried about um, losing your own life. You're worried because in some sense you've got a price on your head. You're worried because you're confused. You're worried because you haven't slept. You're in a strange place. The events of the last few days are crazy. Um, everything's kind of going on. And you're trying to make sense of all of these things and the reports that you're hearing that Jesus is risen from the dead. And so as you're trying to kind of take all of this in and you're, you're doing it with a, a group of people with different opinions and the conversations flying around fast, what are the implications of this? Um, the, the doubters, the, the ones that, that believe all, all, all over the place, all over the map. And then all of a sudden Jesus walks through the door, like opens the door I'm not saying like walks through the door. I'm, like when you're talking about Jesus after he rose from the dead, you got to be careful what you say because, you know, he's not a ghost. Jesus walks through the door, um, comes into the room to meet his disciples, and, and now all of a sudden it shuts the conversation down because everything they were talking about is now past tense or outdated. It's old. It's an old conversation the minute Jesus shows up in the room, right? Like, what do we think? What's really going on? What do we do? All ends when Jesus walks in the room. So you, you kind of bite your tongue, you choke on the words you were about to say, and you're kind of lost and confused and amazed. And the natural reaction is, is this real? Is this real? Um, and so they thought, some of them, that they'd seen a ghost or that they were seeing a ghost. I think that would be a natural response. If you had been there when somebody died, if you'd helped bury them possibly, and then you see them again, um, it must be a ghost. It's like Obi-Wan Kenobi, like that shows up for Luke Skywalker because he's a Jedi. And, but, it's, but it's Obi, but it's not. It is, but it, you know what I mean? There he is, there he's not. Is it really him? I don't know. But it's, but it's like a vision. It's a ghost. You know what I mean? Like, is that what's going on? Are we just having a, um, a spiritual experience? Did we take LSD? What's going on? Um, and Jesus hears this and he says, listen, um, look at me. I'm in the flesh. You can see the evidence 
um, that I have come back from the dead because I still bear the marks of, of being crucified. A ghost would just be this kind of fanciful thing in its pristine state. Jesus is literally being remade as a, as a person. He's uh, risen from the dead. And they're kind of still a little bit skeptical. And so Jesus isn't saying, let's sit down to a meal. Most of the meals that we've talked about in the Gospel of Luke, there's this phrase, Jesus reclined with them, right? That's how they, they used to eat, lower table, and you would recline and you would, you would converse. Jesus isn't reclining with them. He says, does anyone have any food? I'll show you, I'll show you that I'm not a ghost. And so someone produces broiled fish, and Jesus eats the broiled fish in their presence um, because ghosts don't eat broiled fish. You know what I mean? Like it's, um, and it's a very symbolic thing. And so he eats, you know, look at my hands, look at my flesh, look at me eating and partaking of food. I've, I've returned, and not only that, everything that was said about me must come true. And this was said about me. So what does this really mean? There's two things we learned from this passage. Uh, the first one is this, that um, Jesus is basically doing two things. The first one is this. He's underscoring the resurrection. He's underscoring the resurrection. There were two groups of people. We talked about them a few weeks ago, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And one more, uh, the Pharisees were probably your conservative group, and the Sadducees were your liberal group. The Sadducees only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, only believed anything that was said in the first five books of the Old Testament. So they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees believed in not only the first five books of the Old Testament, but also the Psalms and, and, and the prophets, as well as the oral tradition. They believed all of uh, the Old Testament and therefore believed in the resurrection of the dead that they saw in other parts of the Old Testament. So the first thing Jesus is doing is, is in some way siding with uh, the Pharisees here, which is an ironic thing because he doesn't always side with the Pharisees. But he teaches them that everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. It's a really interesting thing. Paul, in Acts 23, 6, he's kind of brought before the Sanhedrin, like the council of the religious leaders of his day. And uh, it says this, Acts 23, 6, Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and that others of them were Pharisees, calls out in the middle of the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, de descended of Pharisees, and I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And then all of a sudden, they all start arguing with each other. So it was like, Jesus is that guy, they're all looking at, or I'm sorry, Paul's that guy, they're all looking at him, and he's smart enough, he's like, I'm going to just throw a, a monkey wrench into this proceeding and get them fighting with each other. Because it's like at uh, Thanksgiving dinner or when you get your family together, you always know those hot button issues that if you want to get a, a fight or a disagreement started, you just throw it out. You know what I'm talking about? Like you just put it on the table and then you can begin backing up and watch the fireworks, you know? And that's what Paul's doing here. He's like, I'm just gonna slide this out. Um, I'm gonna say the words Fox News, you know? And then, and then just watch people go, you know? Or I'm gonna, I'm gonna say like, you know what I mean? So he just kind of does this. But so this is a very real issue. And so you see two things happen. And the first one is this, that Jesus is underscoring the resurrection, which, which is profound and huge. I was... Uh, meeting with some people recently that, that have a, a view that it doesn't really matter what that looked like, um, Jesus has changed my life. And, I'm, and I have a hard time with that. What do you mean it doesn't matter what the resurrection looked like? Whether it was more of kind of like a spiritual thing, but, but not something you could have captured if you had had a, a video camera set up, you know, which, you know, physical, literal, logical tangible resurrection and they're like you know it doesn't really matter and I'm like it it seems that that it that it does because this is what Jesus was was proclaiming and then Paul later proclaims in 1 Corinthians 15 that without the resurrection without the resurrection of the dead we're to be pitied pitied most among all people because we're we're going to we're going to give our lives to an idea that's completely not grounded in reality says Paul. 
And the person I was talking to said, well, that's Paul's view of it. I'm like, well, you know, and so we're just going to, we're just going to choose to squint our eyes because we're afraid that maybe it wasn't really like it says in the Bible, but it doesn't really matter because my life has been changed. Like, I, I don't get that. And I don't think Jesus leaves that open for us. He's, he's grounding the very view that Paul was espousing in 1 Corinthians 15. He showed them all of these things had to happen to me that were talked about in the books of Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. The resurrection matters. Come look at my body. Let, let me eat a fish. Let me show you that this is what we're talking about. There's another interesting thing that, that kind of cor, uh, correlates to that. Um, and this is what I think Luke is doing for us. Because remember, the, the different writers are writing to different audiences. So uh, Matthew, the disciple Matthew, writes his gospel, the first one in the New Testament, to a very Jewish audience. And so you see a lot of Jewish phrases and colloquialisms. I mean, it's, it's the background story that they're familiar with. Luke, who's been traveling with Paul, is writing to a Greek audience. And so they're not familiar with all the inside language. And so you see a, a subtle difference that he kind of puts in his gospel to kind of go an extra step in explaining kind of the backstory or using phraseology that they'd be familiar with so that they can understand it. But he's addressing a very Greek audience. And then uh, uh, Luke goes on to write the book of Acts. But you have this kind of thinking in, in Greek thought, beginning with Plato, of this dualism between spirit and matter. Okay. You have this, this dualism. It's, it's, it's called a Greek dualism, but uh, spirit and matter. And spirit is seen as really good, okay? Uh, the, the heavenly realms and for Plato, the forms. And, and it's all the things that are uncorrupted by corruptible flesh. So all the good is kind of the spirit and matter or flesh is corrupted. And therefore, it's kind of dirty. It's kind of bad, and so in the Greek way of, of seeing um, things, when you really want to talk about something um, pure or holy, you don't want to bring flesh into it. You want to talk about it just kind of in a spiritual way. Um, it, it, it looks human, it walks human, it talks human, but it's not really human because it doesn't have flesh because if it had the flesh, it would be, it'd be dirty be kind of somehow messy. Um, and so what's going on here is the beginnings of what would become later on, 100 years later, the Gnostic heresy, which was this view, this idea that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh, that he was kind of floating, you know, six inches above the ground at all times. And this is what happened when, when the gospel started going out to Greek-speaking places where you didn't have the Jewish background where flesh is good. God made man and women in his own image in flesh before the fall and proclaimed it good. And so the things of this world, the physical things in the Jewish mind are good things. In the Greek mind, less so. And so as the gospel kind of goes into Greek-speaking cultures, they begin to kind of overlay that onto the story and begin to kind of move things around so that it fits their worldview. And in that, they begin to make it all about spirit and, and less about matter and, um, and that that begins to be what they worship. And in that, Jesus can't be corrupted by flesh. Okay? So I think Luke is showing us something here as well, like that, that Jesus was taking pains to say the flesh matters. Like, look at my flesh. Uh, give me something to eat. So John picks up on this theme in his gospel, but even more in his epistles, his letters. And he talks about, we witnessed him, we ate with him. We saw him in the flesh. And so he uses that word flesh over and over in his letters that, that were written in, in the, the late first century. Because he's trying to say, this is not Gnostic, this is not some dualism. What's going on here is the resurrection of the dead. From, a, a, from the second person of the Trinity that took on flesh and became a person like we're a person. So that's another kind of side note coming on. So Jesus underscores the resurrection, a physical resurrection. Second thing Jesus does is this. He grounds ultimate meaning 
or our ultimate happiness in forgiveness. He grounds ultimate meaning or ultimate happiness um, as coming through forgiveness. He sets up a mechanism that's really the only mechanism, it's the good news, that we can be fully satisfied, that we can find full happiness, excuse me, and joy. And, and the way we're going to do that is through forgiveness. What Jesus said was this. It was what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise, on the de- uh, rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. What is at the heart in terms of the path or the mechanism by which we're going to take the longings, the, the hunger for happiness, the deep yearning that we have to be satisfied and actually find resolution to that tension? What Jesus is saying is it comes in repentance, recognition that we tend to desire the wrong things or even do the wrong things, and that, that half the time we even know that, but we still turn away. And it's a repentance, it's an acknowledgement of that, and then a turning to Christ and saying, I will let you forgive me for that, so that I will be somebody forgiven and therefore accepted into relationship with you, so that now I can walk with you as a disciple and I can grow in Christ-likeness as I give the rest of my life to being a sojourner or a pilgrim on this earth, that my ultimate goal and my ultimate citizenship, my ultimate um, kind of worldview is not grounded in the here and now. It's with you looking to the future for the joy set before, before him. Jesus endured the cross. So this is the path that we're given and where we're going to find this ultimate happiness. And I think it is as old as the Bible, this story. It begins in Genesis. We can trace it all throughout Scripture. It's called the scarlet thread of redemption. And it runs all throughout Scripture that this is God's plan to reconcile us back to himself in Christ Jesus so that things can be as they ought to be, so that we can be fulfilled because now we're living the the life we were created to live with our Creator going about the business that he has for us and doing that in relationship. That's the path. It's as old as scripture. It's as old, I think, possibly is is in the mind of God and the twinkling in his eye of creating the world. And so the interesting thing is, is we don't like to camp on that story. Um, One of the things I lament is the explosion of, of communications these days, the explosion of opportunity, the explosion of dialogue through social media has created a lot of opportunity. What it's also done is really downgraded the value of education. And so everywhere I go, people are telling me education is dead, college is dead, uh, a university degree is dead. And what they mean by that is you're better off economically not pursuing that and going straight into business and trying to do a, a really good job and perform. Um, and I, I think I'm beginning to agree at that level that vocationally or even economically investing a whole lot of money in for what you get out of it, those people might be right. What I, what I don't agree with, though, is that the value of education is dead. Let me t- explain, to you, uh, explain to you what I mean by that. Everywhere you go today, people are going to say, we need to have a conversation about this. We need to have a conversation about race. We need to have a conversation about um, the family. We need to have a conversation about the global politics. We need to have a conversation about, um, evidently, North Korea. Uh, We need to have a conversation about all these things that that are gripping us, Uh, entertainment, the children and, and the education system for our youth and technology and how much is too much or not, not enough for what it means when, or, or when kids are developing. Like We need to have conversations about this. What I find, however, is all we're saying almost over and over and over and over is that we, we should have conversations about this. I don't find many long, extended, deep, nuanced conversations actually happening, though. 
Does that make sense? Like, they're rare. And the value of education or college for me, the university, is that it is time set aside where you actually lean deeply into conversation and you give time and space for that and even read and grab history and kind of pull that in so that you can interact with that. I think there's something really important about that. And I think when we're downgrading education and we're flattening everything out, we also have a lot of voices in Christendom, in Christianity, that are speaking with influence into the lives or the communities of Christians. In other words, there are a lot of voices impacting a lot of people, Christian voices impacting a lot of Christians, that may or may not have ever been uh, discipled or mentored or taught or instructed or sat deeply in the history or the theology uh, or philosophy of ministry or whatever it might be. And so what, what really is, is kind of scary to me is that overall effect loses the deep intellectual wealth that has always been a, a trademark of Orthodox Christianity. And I think in losing that, that deep center, I begin to see a lot of voices out there influencing Christians that don't really want to, to camp on repentance and forgiveness. And so it looks like this. Um, it's, it's as Christians talking to Christians, but going after strategies or mechanisms that are borrowed from other parts of culture. So um, instead of forgiveness, it's enlightenment, right? Instead of forgiveness, it's enlightenment. It's let's read these things, let's discuss these things, let's become very, very liberal in our sensibilities and, and we begin to realize that somehow we're becoming enlightened, we're, we're a better form of human that doesn't hold on to some of these other things. Um, we're, we're in some sense in love with our own loftiness, enlightenment. And it can look like um, going and doing a whole lot of, it can look very pseudo-Christian. I'm going to go solitude and do a whole lot of meditation and a whole lot of whatever. But what is the object of that meditation? What is the object of that prayer? What is the object of that solitude? Is it seeking out relationship with God or is it, is it going so deep into your own self that you're mining the depths of your own psyche and getting really excited about what you're finding there and feeling when you come out of that very enlightened? Um, I think we do this in a lot of ways. Um, that we choose spirituality over Jesus. Christian spirituality, what does that mean? What well, means that if I do more of these things, I get more of this thing, which is called spirituality. And I, I don't see Jesus falling into that same formula. That my relationship with Jesus is somehow, if I do more and more of these things, somehow I become greater. I think when I look at Jesus, it's more of a, of a receiving and a humility. And then relationship that doesn't give much concern to me getting more and more. Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus came and emptied himself. And so you shouldn't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. But like Christ... Take the lowly position so that God can exalt you. Don't learn more language and how to quote more authors and, and kind of get more and more stuff that allows you to feel more and more spiritual. And then you got to do more and more Christian small groups so that there's an audience that can see how you're becoming more and more spiritual, right? Um, I don't know. I could keep going, but I won't. And then lastly... Humility, not strength. We're observing the Lord's Supper, and if we went back a few chapters, you don't need to, but if we went back a few chapters to where Jesus observes the Last Supper, he, um, he has to put out an argument that happens about who's going to be greatest. It's like a playoff team. This is where, where his disciples were at. It's like a playoff team. They're going to the playoffs, and you got the second baseman and the shortstop, 
uh, in a picture, and they're all arguing about who's more important to the season and who's going to play a bigger role uh, in the World Series and who's going to get a, a more prominent spot when we do the San Francisco kind of parade, right? I mean, this is where those guys are at. And they're saying, this is really cool. We're in with the guy. And since we're in with the guy, we're going to be in these positions of honor. And Jesus is like, these guys are so clueless. They're going to be running for their lives in 24 hours. They're so clueless about what's really going on. And he tries to teach them one last time. And he says, I, being the master, came as a servant. So if I'm postured as a servant, then why are you guys talking about parades and honor? Shouldn't you um, rather be coming alongside me and saying, how do I serve well too? How do I do what you're doing? Let me stand next to you because I want this relationship. And when someone's wash, washing the dishes and, and you want a relationship with them, um, you tend to, to grab a towel and you start drying uh, just to the right, right of them, right? And Jesus is saying, if you really understood my kingdom, you would come not in strength, but in humility. And so when I see Christians that are coming to me in strength, you know what I, I know about them? That that has become their mechanism for finding happiness. That what they're feeding on is not forgiveness and reconciliation and relationship with Christ, but what they're actually feeding on, what, what gets them up in the morning and what makes them feel good about themselves as they go through the day, what they're feeding on is actually some kind of a, of a bent version of Christianity where they're becoming better and better at this Christian game. Just like if you play fantasy football or if you play poker or if you play softball, or if you take up golf, or whatever. When you get into that club, and you start playing better, and you start learning the language, and you start learning which clothes to wear, and you start doing it better and better, you begin to feel good about being a part of that club. And how in that club, you're a lot further than the new people coming in um, that are still got the price tags, you know, like on their golf club, uh, glove. And, and you're like, oh, they're trying so hard. They're not like me who really gets it. You know, when people look at me, they see a golfer. <laughs> um, we do that with Christianity. When people look at me, they see a real Christian. Why? Because I'm in the club and I've, I've advanced far enough that I wear it, I wear it effortlessly. And I've got the uh, lingo and I can run circles around you. I can, I can talk about Luther. Or Calvin. I'm, I have a desire to use a cuss word in a quote. And I've never done that in church, so I probably shouldn't. It's probably like ask the elders question. Um, so I'll save that one. It's not my cuss word. It's a cuss word in a quote. I'm, I'm still going to wait. Um, uh, <laughs> It's a Luther quote. It's really funny. I'll tell you after church if you come find me. But it shows you that these guys that we, we reference in the club were just normal dudes. And Calvin, if you go to Geneva, you'll see like where actually in downtown Geneva, the architecture got really plain when he took over. Because he was very austere and they, they wanted to get rid of all ornamentation. And supposedly that's one of the reasons the Swiss became really good at watches. One, because those Protestants were really punctual, um, the Protestant work ethic. But two, because they were really punctual and they, they valued watches, it was the only thing you could kind of dress up, supposedly. Um, you can, you can, it's a cool story, even if it's not true. But, so, but I, I've been to Geneva and I've looked at those things and I'm like, I wouldn't have gotten along with Calvin. I would have hated Calvin. Like, I would not have wanted to spend time with Calvin. Calvin would have probably bored, bored me to tears or I would have wanted to choke him, one or the other. But there doesn't, there doesn't seem to be anything interesting. The dude did not have a sense of humor, right? Like, he couldn't even allow windows that had, you know what I mean? Like, he had no sense. So why in the club can I throw around Calvin and be like, someday you'll learn who Calvin was. You can be like me in the club because I do this well. And you know what? It makes me feel good about myself. 
And somehow in all that, we lose repentance and forgiveness. And we lose humility, not strength. Uh, and I'm terrified that some of us are, are at a more, I think, deeper existential level, like really in a crisis. And in that crisis of not finding happiness, we actually think if we go sin and sin more, maybe it'll actually work for us. Or some of us are sinning, and you know what? We refuse to admit it to anyone, even ourselves. We're not going to let go of that sin in our life. We don't want repentance, because if we repent, we know we'd kind of have to say goodbye to this, and we're not going to let go of it. So, so we are actively right now in the process of finding new friends who will give us the excuse we need to hang on to our sin and feel okay about ourselves. All of us in this room are looking to find happiness. All of us. And what Jesus is saying is, Here's the good news. I'm, I'm, I'm back from the dead in the flesh as it was foretold in Scripture. And because of that, my death on the cross actually has power for you. And because of that, the promise I give you about the, the power of the Holy Spirit, you can certainly bank on. And because of that, if God raised me from the dead, I'm the first fruits, and you can trust that God will come for you too. That God will not forget you, but that you will have a place in his kingdom. Because of this, this good news, you can repent and find your way to happiness and relationship with God through me. It's about repentance and forgiveness. That is the good news. It's always been the good news. It's always been the path for Christians. And as old as it is, as non-progressive as it is, it's where we can go and find our greatest joy. And I plead with you today that we go back to the deep, historic, orthodox understanding of Christianity that Jesus himself gave and confirmed and that we don't keep trying to find more progressive, enlightened ways of bending it around to somehow make it something that might allow us to feel good about ourselves, but lacks all the power, all the power that Jesus said would come with the gospel. So I'm going to read a prayer out of this uh, Puritan prayers book. Pete's going to come up and lead us uh, into the Lord's table. But this is a, a Puritan prayer called Continual Repentance. It's one of my favorites. O God of grace, thou hast imputed, uh, uh, I got to get my Shakespearean on. Um, thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute and hast imputed his righteousness to my soul, clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy, filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. And I'm always going into the far country and always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, and thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Well, I'm grateful I get the privilege of wrapping up our uh, table series as well as leading us to the communion table this morning. And so if you uh, have been with us for the last couple months, um, we've looked at eight meals that Jesus shares with various people in the Gospel of Luke. And um, a lot of different meals, different occasions, different crowds, different contexts. 
But I, I would wrap it up by just calling our attention to one simple thing that all these meals have in common. Just one observation that's going to seem really obvious. But at every story that we've looked at for the last two months, every table that we've entered into, Jesus is present there. At every meal, Jesus is present. And sometimes, as we've seen, he's the host. Sometimes he's the guest. But he's not just present, kind of passively lurking or watching from the background, but he's actively engaged. That he's paying attention. He's present with those he's sharing the table with. He's concerned about them. He cares about them. And he's responding to whatever need he observes in them, whether it's the need for teaching or correction or the need for healing or forgiveness or the simple need for a meal. Jesus is present at the table. So imagine with me for a moment that you are invited by Jesus to share a meal with him. Can you imagine what it would feel like to receive that invitation that Jesus wants you to come and to eat with him? What would that feel like? Like, where, what would you wear? Would you offer to bring a side? Like, how do you prepare yourself for that meal? And once you're there, how do you act around Jesus? Do you try to impress him? Do you try to fool him into believing that you're doing better than you actually are? Do you think you could? Do you think that's actually what he would want? Or would he want you to come just as you are, with your warts and all, with your sketchy past, with your doubts, with your sins, with your fears, just as you are, the real you, with your social awkwardness and your addictions and your insecurities and your self-righteousness? If there's one thing that I hope we've seen in the last two months as we look at these meals with Jesus is that those who try to present themselves to Jesus as as people who have it all together, who have other options, those are the ones that typically, typically leave those meals disappointed. But the ones who come broken, the ones who come empty handed, the ones who come authentic before him with their sin and flaws and warts and all, those are the ones who end up leaving that table with the gift of life, of reconciliation, forgiveness, and hope. And so if you were invited to the table with Jesus, would you come? And no matter who you are, you would have to think that would change a person, wouldn't it? To share a table with Christ. And that would change every meal you ate after that. And so this morning, it's my privilege to invite us to come to the table where we find the very real presence of Christ. And the communion table isn't simply an invitation to dine with Jesus, but it's also an invitation to dine on Jesus, as strange as that sounds. That this bread representing his body and this cup representing his blood would actually become the feast that our souls are starving for. That we would receive life from Christ in a way that we need. And so here we are, four days before Christmas, and for some of us, Christmas may feel like a strange time to celebrate communion, right? Because communion is an experience that calls our attention to the suffering and the death of Christ, and Christmas is obviously a celebration of the birth of Christ. But it's actually, the communion table is actually at the very heart of what Christians have had in mind when they first began celebrating Christmas. Do you know what the word Christmas means? Christ's Mass, the Mass of Christ. So Mass is one of the words that followers of Jesus have used to refer to the Eucharist, to the Lord's table. 
So Christmas was originally a mass in honor of Christ's presence on earth, of the incarnation of this incredible story that Ken's talking about, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus. And he's made himself one of us and lived among us and died for us that we could come to him, that we could dine with him and dine on him, that we could find our life and our identity in him. And so this morning we're going to share in this ancient Christian tradition of Christ's Mass. And sometimes we get the idea that communion is just for people who have it all together. They've confessed and dealt with all their sins, and they've been on top of their devotions, and they're not on God's naughty list or whatever, like this is for the good Christians. But if we've learned anything by studying the Lord's table over the last eight weeks, it's that Jesus' table is for sinners. And in fact, I'd go as far even to say that communion is only for sinners. And so if you're here this morning and you have it all together, if you never wrestle with sin or fear or doubt or anything like that, if you've lived a perfect life and never struggled at all, then this isn't for you. It's for the rest of us who have nowhere else to go. So I'm going to invite Katie and the band to come, and they're going to lead us in four or five songs in response to this invitation that God has given himself to us in Jesus. And he has invited us to come and to dine with him, to be reconciled in relationship with him, to find life in him. And there's no greater way to enter into that relationship anew than by coming and feeding on the body and blood of Christ at the communion table. And so the way we'll do this here, there's uh, four tables here at the front, two in the back. I feel like a flight attendant. Um, and as Katie and the band lead us, um, whenever you're ready to come to the table, we'll try to come down the center aisles towards the table, whichever table you choose, and then exit uh, on, on the outer aisles. And uh, feel free to linger as long as you need to at the table. To, you're dining with Jesus. He's here and ready to meet you. And um, the last thing I would say is that oftentimes Christians use the language of taking communion, which I would argue is incorrect. We don't take communion from Jesus. We receive it. There's a big difference between taking and receiving that we don't have to pry grace out of God's clenched fists. But he is freely offering himself to us in relationship and hope. So I'll read from 1 Corinthians 11. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.